welcome to DevCast, brought to you by Devril Smith, the right people. DevCast is where property meets people, industry figures, news and views, what it takes to be your best. So sit back, earphones on, and enjoy this edition of DevCast. Welcome to DevCast, Devil Smith's audio series, which holds exclusive and thought-provoking interviews with, pro- with professionals right across the property industry. My name's Andrew Devil Smith. I'm the CEO and founder of Devil Smith. And today I'll be joined by LGBT activist and founder of property surveying company, MHBC, Antonia Belcher. Antonia's had and continues to have a fascinating life and career. Before founding MHBC, Antonia worked for 32 years at Mellish and Harding, entering as a surveyor and working her way up to equity partner. Um, whilst that is impressive in itself, it is during her time there that Antonia found her voice and strength to bravely transition in what is uh, commonly accepted as a heavily heteronormative industry. Antonia, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for allowing me to come along. Not, not at all. So I've been looking forward to this for, for a while. Um, I'd really like to ask you questions about life before career. Is that, is that okay? Can we kick off? Yeah. No, that's fine. Um, talk to where, where, where are you from? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was, what was childhood like for you? Okay. Uh, I was born uh, in February 1957 um, in a place called Chertsey, just outside of London, 35 miles, I think, ish out of London, um, to, in, a, in a small bungalow, not, not a hospital. I was born at home um, the, and I'm the eldest of four. I have two, two younger brothers and, uh, and the, the extreme younger sister. Um, and um, my father, uh, a very working class um, background. Um, my dad was a builder. He had just started his own building company, hence that's why I ended up coming into construction. And um, he worked every God-given hour of the day. We hardly ever saw him as children. We only really ever saw him on a Sunday afternoon. He would even work Sunday mornings and really just not, not the Sunday afternoon. Um, and my mum, uh, a devout Catholic, um, a single child herself, uh, with very Catholic parents, and my dad, a total agnostic, atheist, everything you could say, not, not religious at all, but a man that lived by a very simple creed, do unto others as you wish done unto yourself. Um, he left school at 13, and he, and he said the best thing he could do was draw a reasonable Mickey Mouse, and that was about it. <laughs> He went on bomb sites um, at the age of 13, clearing up debris and uh, making them safe um, and learned to wield a hammer and to use a saw, as he says. And that's why he became a, uh, a junior carpenter and trained up to be a cabinet maker and then to create his own building company. So I have immense amount of respect for my dad. He achieved a lot. And in his older years, he became um, he, the president of his own rotary club uh, uh, locally in Chertsey. So for a man who left school at 13, hardly read or write to become a, a president of a Rotary Club. I, th- I think he did very well. And he instilled in me the desire and the ambition to do well myself. And uh, as a youngster, um, 
I would, I think from about the age of 11, I would go to his joinery shop and I would sweep it at the weekends, clear all the sawdust away from the machines and I'd earn my pocket money. And, and with that bit of interest in what he was doing, he would then put me in the front of his van on a Saturday morning and I would go around the sites when he would go see what was going on and often pay the guys. In those days, it was a brown, brown envelope with their money and nothing more. He'd go and pay them. And, and, and by the time I got to about 15, 16, he, he knew I was good with numbers. So he actually had me leave. I would leave school on a couple of afternoons a week and go to his um, accounts office. And I would help uh, run the accounts and I would actually do, do general, general stuff. So from a child, I was always in the building background uh, one way or the other. And dad had some impressive clients. And uh, he, he worked for three of the Beatles. Um, yeah, and he's got amazing, he had amazing stories about the jobs he did for the Beatles. He worked for Jimmy Tarbuck and Bruce Forsyth. Um, yeah, some of the sort of celebrity, celebrity great and good. Um, not all of them were perfect clients, I must admit. Some of them he didn't trust at all. Um, but it was just a fascinating experience. And, um, and my dad was very much a sort of the earth character. You know, he didn't sign contracts. He shook hands with his clients. His word was his bond and he would never let them down. I think most of them did, did abuse him in this day and age, you know, looking back, being in the building industry myself and looking at what happens on contracts, um, I can see that my dad was probably taken for a ride quite often, but, but he was a happy man. He instilled um, that in, our, in us as kids. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we lived in a small bungalow that he built um, when he married my mum. Um, tiny place now. I've, I've gone back there and looked at it and thought, how the hell did four children grow up there and, and live there? But we did. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that's, my, that's, that's it. We, we lived in Chertsey for, until I was about uh, my mid-teens. Then we moved to uh, Perford and then we moved to Ottershaw, which is not far from Chertsey, where he built another house. I think mum had got onto him enough and said, now's the time you've got to build me a house, having done it for so many clients. Um, and so we've, we've been always in the area around Woking, Guildford, and indeed I now currently live not far from Guildford um, with my family. Very good. I, it's a, it's a, having spent 20 years doing what I do, it's a, it's, I wouldn't say a, a common story, everybody's story is unique, but it, you know, following in the footsteps or you know, cutting on steep, you know, whilst um, holding down the school, <laughs> the, the school grades, it's not a common sort of path. Um, I can see the passion that you speak for him and, and it makes total sense for you to progress in a career that you have. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes. Um, um, so I, um, because of my, my inner being that I never allowed to be expressed, um, which I can talk about a little bit in due course, but I, I needed to challenge myself. I, I needed to, um, uh, as, as I was a, a young teenager and wrestling with this idea, am I really a boy? Um, and not being able to um, tell my family because it, it would have decimated my family had I, had I said anything. Um, I, I needed to um, keep myself, um, um, I had to stop my mind thinking about this inner thing that I had in my head. And, and the only way I could do it was to stay really active. I, I learned that if I concentrated on doing things, then I wouldn't think about 
you know, my, my circumstances. Um, so it just made me, I, I think I messed around as a youngster. I had two younger brothers and we played a lot um, and I liked mucking around. Um, although although I, I sort of, from a fairly early age, I think more or less from when I could logically think, I, I, I question. I questioned the fact, am I really a boy? Because I didn't have all the, I didn't think the way that I thought most boys thought. I, I thought other things and, and, and it was just, you know, I was just questioning my gender. But as I said, I couldn't, I couldn't tell anyone and I would never have told my family. Um, and, and so I, I, I learned that I had to work hard at school, but I didn't really, I didn't really start, start that, that well until I got into my teenage years, but, but I did knuckle down I did work hard, but I, I decided that when I got my A-levels um, that I didn't want to work locally in construction. Um, and I was trying to work out how to, how to start a career. And my father had lots of friends in the construction industry from property agents to architects. And I would just talk to them when I met them at his yard or, or when they came to the house and they steered me towards becoming a surveyor. Um, and I thought, well, how can I do this? And back in sort of 1975, um, you know, we, I think there just there was a recession, or we were coming out of a recession then, actually. And I just thought, well, I'll write to surveying practices in London, and 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 I would just say, give me a job. It was as simple as that. It was, I would like to be a surveyor. I'm from the sticks. I have a father who works in, in construction, but I'd like to be a proper proper surveyor. So can you give me a job? And I did that before I had my A-levels, um, before I'd taken them. And, um, and I, I bought a copy of Estates Gazette as it was then, and I got the names for the firms. And I wrote to Hillier Parker, I wrote to Helium Baker, I wrote to, um, you know, the, the old names. Some of them are not around. I mean, Hillier's not around, Helium Baker not around now. I mean, they've all been swallowed up by the, big, by the other practices. Um, but I also wrote to a firm called Mellish and Harding, who was in St. James's Place. Um, yeah. And um, one of the, my dad's property friends said, oh, I know Mellish and Harding, you know, they're very blue-blooded blue -blooded firm, act for the great and the good, small boutique type practice, not very big, but, but they've got a wonderful reputation. And I wrote to them, I, I wrote to some others similar to them, um, and, but I got a reply from Mellish and Harding. I, I got a letter from the then senior partner who just said, um, um, yeah, if you get your A-levels, come and start work on, I think, it, yeah, the 7th of July. 7th of July, 1975, he said, come on, come, come, come and work. Um, would, would you like to pop up and, and just see us beforehand, which was sort of semi-like an interview. Um, so I, I actually showed this to my mum. I said, mum, I've actually got a reply. And she said, oh, look, let's go up. And so she, she came up with me to meet the then senior partner of Melish and Harding. I mean, you know, talk about, you know, a young... <laughs> A young 17-year-old going up to London with his mum, with his mum, to to see see where he might might be working, and um, it was a really really nice experience. And um, we didn't talk about surveying. We talked about what my dad did and and the things I I'd been doing around that, and what I wanted to do. And anyway, he he said then, yep, get your A levels and start. So I literally did. I. I I remember saying to my dad, I'm going to be working in London. Um, and I had about three weeks um, between finishing the last A-level um, and going up there. Um, and, um, and I said to dad, you know, can I, can I borrow some money to, 
to get a season ticket to go to London on the train. And he said, no, you can come and work for me for three weeks and, uh, and I'll pay you three weeks money that'll equate to your season ticket. So I said, okay. So I worked for him for three weeks. I think he wished he hadn't asked me to work for him. <laughs> I, I remember I, I drove one of his lorries and uh, I broke some glass panes on the back of the lorry because I was driving too, too fast over, over bumpy roads. And I also remember I was insulating a loft with one of his uh, carpenters. I was, I was rolling out the insulation and, uh, and I slipped and I fell through the plasterboard and, and damaged the ceiling that they had just tacked up. So I think my dad said to me at the time, he said, you know, he said, maybe I shouldn't have asked you to come to work for me because you've cost me more than what I'm paying you. And so, uh, anyway, but these are experiences. And um, so I started at Mellish and Harding um, as a junior surveyor and, and I was split between several departments. I was spending a day in shops negotiation, a, uh, a, day, a day in commercial agency and a day in building surveying. And, and I was sat on the drawing board drawing. I mean, I, I'm, I was always very good at drawing. And, um, and for six months, I was spread very thin between doing all sorts of things, going down to Catford and showing people rundown shops in Catford, um, um, going and measuring, measuring stuff for someone who was going to draw a bookcase. Uh, yeah, all weird, weird and, and totally dislocated things, but, but it was amazing. I was just learning. And, um, and in the end, I just realized I really enjoy sitting on the drawing board doing the construction drawings and being with the building surveyors. And I remember going to that partner who had interviewed me and I said, can I change? Can I not? I don't want to be a commercial agency. I don't want to be a shops negotiator. I'd just like to be a building surveyor. He was really upset because um, building surveyors were the Cinderella industry in those years. <laughs> and um, he just said, OK, out. And that was it. And I, I, I changed position and I was suddenly in building surveying full time. Um, and I had enrolled day release at South Bank um, to do a degree. Um, and I was having one day, I was having Friday off to go, go there. And it was a wonderful experience doing that degree um, at South Bank because I was one of three um, 18 year olds that were straight out of school, just employed, that were trying to do this course. And, all, and the other and 20 odd of the others were all district surveyors, building control officers, quite high up in, in building control. Um, because they've been told if they need, if they want to get a leg up and move in their career within local government, they had to become qualified. So they needed to be RICS. And so I was learning with people who were, you know, five to 10 years older than me at college. And I'd go down, have a cup of coffee with them, sit there, and they would tell me all the things that the, you know, the tricks of the trade that were going on on site in the big construction sites in London. And I would learn from them as much as I would learn in the actual lectures being tutored by the, uh, by, by the professionals. And I did that day release for five years. I, I, got, I got a degree, an honours degree. Um, and I think the work, you know, I, I worked really hard because again, this thing in my head, I just, just had to deny myself and it was the way I did it. Um, and work, Mellish and Harding saw a keen young boy really trying hard, you know, getting qualified quite quickly, doing, doing it the hard way with day release and working was no option mum and dad could never afford to send me to university so that was never on the cards this was the only way I could do it and um and the firm just said to me you know yeah you're doing well keep keep it up you know we're, we're watching you and I just thought oh, brilliant and about a year later something then happened and the two building surveyors that I was working for both left and I think there was a falling out um and the partner the, the partner who had originally recruited me came to me and just said um 
you know, don't, don't be worried that they've gone. We'd still like you to stay because we think you've got prospects and um, we'd like you to now be the building surveying unit. So having just qualified at the age of about 25, I was Melisham Harding's building surveying department all on my own. And, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it was a real experience because I was suddenly having to do thing that, things that I've watched more senior people do. I was having to do them. And, uh, and I was really learning very rapidly, but, and I was working hard. And, uh, and I think they just, yeah, about a year later, they said to me, we think we'd like to make you a salary partner, which was incredible. I was about 27 and, uh, and it was just, wasn't what was going on, what I was seeing others do. And they said, well, we're gonna make you a salary partner. We'd like to put you in charge of the building Spain department. We'd like you to recruit more people and we'd like you to start it properly. And I said, well, I'd watch what the other two guys were doing who've left. And a lot of what they were doing was residential work. And I just don't think residential's where the real action is. You know, building is moving up, it's getting into commercial property. It's, it's, it's doing so much more now. Um, you know, maybe you'll allow me to look more in the commercial sphere and do office fit out and things like that. And not, not just the residential client work that we seem to have sort of been doing whilst I, when I started and they, they sort of said, yeah, if that's what you want to do. I don't, I don't think they really thought I was going to do that much, but yeah, if that's what you'd like to do, then get on with it. Um, so I then um, obviously set about recruiting other people. Um, I recruited a wonderful guy, um, Andrew Webster, who's, who's my current partner at the firm where, where I am now. And he's, he's a couple of years younger than me. He was coming from Chesterton's, done his early stint at Chesterton's and was looking for the next leg up. And he joined me and um, yeah, and we've, we've actually been two, two business people together ever since. And um, we're chalk and cheese and um, it's worked really well. Um, and I then just carried on. I just worked, did everything they wanted me to do, made new clients, got into commercial work. We grew the department and the department was expanding with staff. Um, and we were, our reach was much wider, more out of London. Um, I, I was suddenly project managing projects um, in Telford, in Manchester, in Birmingham, and I was driving all around the country doing it. Um, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. And um, I was busy, but I still wasn't busy enough. And my brain was still sort of, I had to keep it occupied. So I decided to do um, another degree in arbitration so I could become qualified as a construction arbitrator. I started their professional qualification in project management. And so all the time I was working, I was working flat out, if I'm honest. I was traveling up to London by train. Um, my hours were quite long in the office. I was getting home at late, get late in the evening. But, but it was all what I wanted to do and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, in the background, um, socially, I had met a lovely girl on the train going up to work um, and we had um, decided that we should be together and um, we got engaged and um, within a year uh, we were married um, and, and she's still my wife um, and we had our first child, Nick, he's my eldest boy now, he's 36 um, and we then had a, um, we then had a um, uh, uh, a, a daughter who was still born at seven months, which was a bit of a shock, but we persevered. And then we had another boy, Sean, who's now 33. 
Um, so to all intents and purposes, you know, I, I, was, I was in a perfect place. I, I was respected at work. I've been made a salaried partner. Um, I had a nice car, um, yeah. family. Um, I was really busy. Um, and, and then they asked me to become an equity partner. The, the partner who had, who, had, who had interviewed me back in 1975 was retiring. And as it worked in these old firms, you, um, you were often given some of the equity of the departing partner, and that was your seed equity. And, um, and that's what I was. I was given some equity from this partner who was retiring. Um, obviously, I forgave my, I had to give up my salary, and I had to rely on, on that equity being enough to, to match what I was earning, but it incentivized me more to go out and get new clients and to start really making the department profitable. Um, and, and I got busier. Um, I also had a bit more money um, and decided to buy a property in France um, to renovate in my summer holidays. I never really took a holiday and I, I didn't go away in a, in a true holiday sense. So I ended up buying a property in France and I would go over there. And my dad was retiring at this point. He was stopping work. And I just said to dad, I've done something crazy. I bought this house in old, old rundown vicarage on a lake in France. And it's a wreck. Um, do you fancy going over there and helping me restore it? And um, and he did. He, he came over and he spent a lot of his time over there restoring it for me with me visiting and doing things. And that was a wonderful thing because actually I then got to really know my dad. I, we were building fireplaces and well, doing all sorts of weird things over there. And, you know, he, he could actually mix lime plaster and, and fix it in the old traditional way and repair plaster moldings and plaster cornices and things like that. And which, you know, is a lost art now. We, we very rarely see that, but that could do those sort of things. And, um, and it was just wonderful being with him and we would talk about his childhood when he'd never, he'd never ever told me that before. And I would learn things about my dad that I never knew. So very grateful to that old, that old property in France and, and what it created. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that for all of, that early part of my life as the man everyone knew me to be and what I was doing, um, I was just busy, busy. And, and to, an, to an extent that that was a pretense to stop me thinking about something else that was always there. And, and that was the fact that um, from a very young age, I had questioned my gender and um, I wondered, am I really a boy? Um, why, why do I have these thoughts that, that suggest I'm not? Um, and in my younger years, I would invent a place where I would mentally go and I would almost, <laughs> I would almost envisage, envisage this situation where I'd been kidnapped and forced to become a girl so that I could be a girl, but not willingly, if that made sense. And that was all I ever did mentally. Um, and, and, you know, as puberty struck and, and, and those changes occur, um, I just found that those thoughts got stronger in me and I just wondered why and I could never understand it. But my, my defense was to lock it out by just being busy. But I got, I got to my sort of mid thirties and um, I found um, that I was, I was still busy, but, but not as busy. I had a big team and I was managing them and uh, and I just had a bit more time that suddenly I just thought, well, what have I done? I've shut this person away that I know is inside me and I've not given them any, any, any space. And um, it is a part of me. Um, and 
and I just found myself thinking about it. And I found myself one day in Marks and Spencers and I, I was buying a skirt and I was buying a blouse and uh, sort of furtively trying to hide them in the, in the carrier bag and get out of the store. And I bunged them in the boot of the car and I'm driving to uh, up north to a meeting where I'm staying overnight in a hotel. And in the hotel, I'm just trying this skirt and blouse on. And I'm just looking in the mirror and, and I'm just thinking, why am I doing this? But I've done it, you know. And how did that? How did that feel when you when you changed the the male it, to female clothes? Yeah, it just felt it, it felt really frightening and really scary. Um, and but but I did it, and I I but there is you know there's no denying it. There was a comfort, and there was a comfort that I was doing it, and there was a comfort wearing them. But. But it was just strange because you're just looking at, I was just looking at the male me in these clothes. And um, anyway, driving home, I dumped them in the motorway service stop, waste bin, disgusted with myself and said, must never do that again. A um, few months pass and I find I've bought some more and only I've bought yeah, maybe a pair of shoes and, and, and I probably raided a bit of makeup from my wife's makeup bag when she's not been looking. And so, and I've sort of planned it more and I'm off somewhere else again. And then I'm in that hotel room and I'm putting those things on, doing the makeup and I brush my hair differently. And I just start to think, mm, you know, maybe, maybe you could have been a girl. Maybe visually you could have been a girl. You know, you, you just start to say to yourself, you, you start to um, egg yourself on, I suppose. And um, but again, I, I was disgusted and, I, and frightened for what I was doing, frightened for what it meant for others. And, um, and, and I threw it away. Anyway, this went on for a little while. And maybe, maybe a year. Uh, maybe a year. Uh, sporadically buying things. And because I had the house in France and I was doing it up, I would often go over there on my own for a weekend. And I would buy stuff before I was going to France. And, um, and so France became a bit of a dress up place for me where I was able to do it with no one watching. And I became more inventive and put more makeup on, um, did my hair, stuff like that. And I did get to a point where I could look in the mirror and I could see my younger sister, but as an older version, because you know, I did look like her. Um, and, and I suppose that that was really the start of it then. I, I was beginning to realize that this is Antonia, you know, there is a person called Antonia, well, I didn't call her Antonia, but there was a she in me, and the she was quite, quite strong in me, and wanted space. Um, but I, but I'm an anorak, I mean, that's how I make my money, by being technically good at what I do, and considering everything, and assessing all the risks, and, and so I was constantly thinking, what am I doing here, what's the risk profile of it, and yet, the power, the power to do more was growing. And, and it was because I was giving, giving, allowing myself to do that. Um, so it came down to a point where I had to decide what to do. So um, by now, we, we had a daughter as well, Justine, and she's now 27. And she's the mother of my grandchild, who's now a year. Um, and um, who, who are self-isolating with us at the moment. So I've got Justine and her husband and my grandson here with Andrew and me, the five of us, and we've been isolating for the last uh, three months. Brilliant. It's just been wonderful having the little one here. We're, we're very lucky. But, um, 
but I, I decided I needed to give Antonia more, more space. Um, so it was at the time when buy to let was booming or, or just starting. It was just, just getting everywhere. And I remember saying to Andrea, I said, look, we've got a nice house. Um, you know, I've got a bit of money now. We've paid the mortgage off. We're, we're no, longer, no longer in debt anywhere and we're not worrying about the overdraft. Um, why don't we buy one of these buy to let properties and let it make some income? It's a good investment, maybe a pension. And I explained the dynamic to her and she said, yeah, that's a good idea. And um, so I said, well, what, we won't buy it on the west side of London. We buy it on the east side of London where we don't know the area. And we won't be worried about what it looks like. And, and if the tenant's looking after it, we'll just detach ourselves from it. And I'll buy it out there. I don't know the east side of London very well, but I'll, I'll do some hunting around. And uh, so I found a flat and um, we bought it and I furnished it. And I said to Andrew, right, now we've got to find a tenant. So, um, but I wasn't finding a tenant. I wasn't trying to find a tenant. I was just feeding her a, a fib. and just saying, oh, it's getting difficult. Everyone, I, everyone who's gone round it doesn't like it or, or they, won't, they won't pay as much, rah, rah, rah. And I said to her one day, I'm getting fed up with this really. Do, do you mind if we don't let it? And I use it during the week because it's not far from the office and I can network more in the evenings at work, be more effective. And when I come home at the weekends, I'll be more, more refreshed from not traveling so much. And, uh, and she said, well, yes, that does sound like a good idea. If you're happy, we can financially do that, then do, then do so. But of course, it was all a ruse. Um, I, I had no intention of letting this flat. I had the intention of it becoming Antonia's pad. And, and at that point, I started uh, living in London from Monday night, well, from Sunday night through to Thursday evening. And I was going home on the Friday after work. Um, so I had basically Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in London. And I would leave work. I'd go to the flat, I bought my wardrobe, I bought everything I wanted, I was kitting out a woman's first home and, and uh, I would, it would take me two hours to get properly dressed and nicely done and then I would go out and I would explore London as a, as a whatever you want to call it, I could have been a transvestite, a transsexual, um, but I was being Antonia, I was being a nocturnal Antonia and it was wonderful and and i had bought my first copy of time out and this is all pre-internet of course you can go on the internet and find out about all these things and i was an absolute greenborn i'd never read anything about lgbtq plus issues at all i mean i had no gay friends i had no lesbian friends i didn't know anyone of an lgbt you know nature and um, so I was learning all this for the first time. So, and, and I realized if I bought time out, I might find some risky places where I could, I could go and have a drink. And, and of course I did. I managed to interpret the, you know, the, the hieroglyphics that in, in time out as to finding these places. And I started finding clubs that were catering for trans people. And, um, and it was amazing. I, I was finding people who were like me. I was talking to people who were like me. They, they were enabling me to understand who I was. And, um, and these were, you know, these were gay people. They were um, transvestites and they were transgender, transsexuals, transsexual people. Um, they were from all walks of life. Um, and, you know, it just opened my eyes. And, um, 
and I was exploiting it. I was literally going out on a Monday night at 10 o'clock and getting back at three in the morning. I was doing it again on a Tuesday. I was doing it again on a Wednesday. I was doing it again on a Thursday. I was maximizing my time as Antonia, going to different clubs each night, meeting new people. Um, I was getting back at the wee hours um, and I was frightened. I needed to scrub all the makeup off. I couldn't go into the board meeting the following morning with mascara on my eyes and let someone see it. I had to really sort of scrub myself clean. I was getting probably an hour, maybe two hours kip a night for those four nights. But I was fired on, an, on, on adrenaline and, um, and what I was finding out. And I did this for five years. I led a double life for five years. No one in Antony's world met anyone in Antonia's. Yes, Antonia was creating a whole raft of new friends. I was, I was opening store, store accounts, credit cards in the name of Antonia Belcher, who didn't exist, of course. I was probably being fraudulent. Um, and buying clothes, you know, online, doing all sorts of things, really, as Antonia, who, who was, you know, a, a, a fiction, really, in the sense of, of, of a real person. But I enjoyed it, and um, I did a lot. And more importantly, I found out about myself. I found out who I was because, you know, I thought for in the early years, I thought I'm transvestite. I thought I just like putting on women's clothing and then I'm getting an enjoyment out of it. Um, but I soon learned I wasn't from meeting other transvestites and transsexual people because they were, we, were, we were called transsexual in those days. Transgender is a new term. Um, but through that and talking to people, I mean, I would, I would challenge people. I'd say, no, I'm a transvestite. And they go, Antonia, trust me, you are not a transvestite. You are transgender. You are transsexual for sure. And, you know, it was, I was sort of getting, I was getting that sort of, sort of um, approval, I suppose. But what happened after five years, um, I, I started to want more. I started to not just want a nocturnal existence. I was taking the odd day off work and having a day out and going shopping as Antonia during the day, which was quite brazen because I was doing it in London. I could have been met by anyone. Um, and I realized I was doing more. And I, and I actually wanted to stop the charade of having to pass. Um, I, I didn't want to worry about hiding my, my beard, beard growth. I didn't want to um, have hairy legs hidden by thick tights. I, was also worried about my voice being so deep at the time. And, um, and so about three years into my second life, I actually started embarking on some things that were quite non irreversible really, which were probably quite risky. I actually had, I went for IPL treatment and I had my beard removed so I could never, never have a beard again. Um, that was never, never picked up by, by my wife and I had my hair removed on my leg. I was never a very hirsute person, to be honest. I had my hair removed on my legs um, and I went to a voice coach so that I could start to perfect a, a, a higher voice for when I was Antonia, um, which you can do if you're coached. Um, the, the voice, the, the human voice box is quite an amazing thing. We, we male and females share the same mechanism just were at different octaves, but you can talk in the middle where if you look like a woman, you can have a brown voice and people will think that's your natural voice, but actually, um, obviously you're not a woman, but you're, 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 it's part of the theater of being who you're, you're trying to be. But so these, are, that. these are significant uh, changes and you, you say neither your wife nor your partners, professional partners, 
No one picked up on it, no. It was quite amazing um, because I, and I also started taking hormones, which was, was a mistake because I, I had been talking to a, a, a lot of things happen in the trans world, you know, below the, below the, the line, the everyday line and um, medication is a big problem. And in those days, um, obviously, I couldn't tell my family doctor what I was doing because the family doctor would worry about Andrew and the kids if I was doing these things. So there's no way I could talk to my family doctor. So I ended up talking to other transgender people who were taking hormones and they were taking them in risky ways. And they referred me to a, a backstreet quack, for the want of a better word. Um, and I went and saw him and he diagnosed me as having gender dysphoria, um, which, which is, is the technical term. And, um, and he said, you know, he was quite happy to prescribe me with hormones. And um, so I went along with that. Um, I was keen to take them to see what they would do to my body and how I would react. Um, sounds crazy, but it's, it's, it's what I did. And, um, and I went to saw this chap and um, he gave me a little bit of paper which just said Antonia, Antonia Belcher has gender dysphoria and, and it's quite natural for her to dress um, as she does and, and, um, and is taking hormones. And he gave me the prescription and I got them and basically all it was, it was he gave me the pill and I was taking the pill. Um, but again, being the anorak, I thought, this is daft, you know, you're putting something in your body, you don't quite know what it's doing. So I um, found myself a gay doctor in Harley Street because I thought that was safe. And I just said to him, you know, I've started doing this, I want you to know, I'd like you to do full bloods on me every six months and make sure that it's not doing any damage. Um, because if it is, then I must stop. And he said, okay, it was all quiet, hushed, hush. I paid him, I paid him cash. <laughs> and, um, and he became a friend actually. And he, he was an interesting character because he was one of the boxing, um, the count, boxing council's doctors. So he was a boxing doctor and um, although he was gay and, and um, he took an interest in what I was doing because he'd never had anyone come along and say that they wanted to do this. Anyway, six months on, I got my bloods back and I had a thing called prolactin, my prolactin reading was reading was um, very high. And he said to me, there's only one thing that's odd is your prolactin reading is, is too high. And I said, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, well, I'm not really sure. He said, I've never had this in a male patient. I'm sure it shouldn't be. So I just said to him, I said, right, well, maybe you could go and research it. I'll carry on for another six months and we'll take a review of it then. And if it's really going the wrong way, we must do something. And he said, yeah, that sounds common sense. So. 12, six months on, 12 months after taking, um, my prolactin reading was out in orbit. It was absolutely going berserk. And, you know, and I had done a little bit of research and realized that, you know, lactating mothers after childbirth would, would have high prolactin readings. Um, but in men, it's not the normal thing. And generally it's a sign of something called an adenoma, a tumor that develops um, on the pituitary gland which sits between your eyes in your forehead, and it's it's the it's the um, endocrine um, gizmo that controls our growth. Um, people who are, are people who are small, people who are over tall, they either have underactive or overactive pituitary glands. Um, but in someone where you're not 
it, it's not um, a birth uh, defect, but it comes online, it means generally you're growing a tumour and the tumour can lead to blindness and ultimately um, brain damage. So I thought, well, this isn't good. <laughs> I need to sort this one out. Um, so I just said to the, the Harley Street doctor, I said, um, okay, I've got Bupa through work. I'm going to write to Bupa and just say to Bupa, um, you know, if, if, you, if one of your members has done something daft but doesn't want to tell you that they've done something daft, but they know they caused a problem which needs better checking out, would you be happy for them to go off and get more seriously checked out? And I'd said to the Harley Street doctor, who do I need to go and see? And he referred me to uh, a professor, Bessa, um, who's a professor emeritus in endocrinology at Barts. And, um, and I just wrote to Bupa and said exactly that. I said, I think I've done something daft. I don't want to tell you what it is, um, but I, I need checking out because of it, because if I don't, um, it could lead to serious um, surgical costs later on. And this is the best way. It's going to be cheaper for you, Bupa, as I'm one of your members. And interestingly, they wrote back at the time and said, yes, yes, get on with it. And they didn't ask me why I, why I felt, felt that way or needed to do it. Um, and I ended up going and seeing Professor Besser. And, um, amazing guy. Um, uh, and he just, uh, I've never been told off. I've never been bollocked so hard by a person in all my life really? as by this Professor Besser. He, he, he tore me off a strip and said, what, um, why on earth would you be doing what you're doing? You're an intelligent person. Why have you done this? And I just said, well, this must be something to do with being trans. You know, I must just tell you what it means. And he just said to me, he said, well, you're taking the wrong thing. You should never be taking it. Um, and I need, to, I need to get you in an MRI scanner as soon as possible and check that you haven't got, you know, the start of a, a tumour. So we went through all that. And as it turned out, I was lucky. I didn't have a tumour develop. Um, and he, he then took it on himself to re-engineer me um, to be who I am now um, and prescribe the right, the right process and the right treatment. And he became a really close friend. And in turn, he asked me to go around and talk to many of his nurses to try and teach them um, what we call trans bedside manner in terms of dealing with the trans community. Um, but I, I've moved into that sort of medical side, but obviously, that, that all happened as other things were happening. And, and I think the, the, the big thing that happened after about five years, well, it started happening at about year four of my nocturnal Antonia um, life. Um, I really started to dislike myself. Um, I was enjoying myself. I was enjoying being Antonia. I was coping with it. I was keeping the two lives separate. I was, I was managing. Um, but I just started to dislike myself for the lies and the deceit and um, the cheating that I was doing. I mean, I wasn't cheating in any, you know, I, I didn't have another partner. Yeah, I wasn't doing anything. That was, I was just enjoying being Antonia. But I realized that I was cheating. Uh, all the people who loved me didn't know what I was doing. And, and, and I suppose in a way I was, I wanted to try and link my, my lives up. But for a year, I just played around with this in my head as to how, how what can I do? And I, and I kept coming back to the simple equation, which was, you know, I, either I've got to put Antonia back in the box and lock her away and never let her out and, and be Anthony and be the husband and the father and the business, business person I am, or, or I'm going to have to let Antonia have some, some more permanence and I'm going to have to stop 
it's being clandestine and I'm going to have to tell people what I'm doing. Um, but I battled with that for a year and, and it really got to me. And who did you tell first? Sorry? Who did you tell first once you'd made the decision? Yeah. That... Well, I, I actually told my wife. Um, we went on holiday at the, it was about five years into the, the nocturnal life. And I didn't say I've been battling it for about a year as to what to do. We went on holiday, we went to Seychelles, we had a beautiful week. And uh, we were having dinner on the Friday night in a lovely setting. It was just really romantic. And um, I, my, brain, my brain sort of took over or, or my mouth took over. And I just suddenly said to her, you know, Andrew, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that's going to change our lives forever. I'm going to tell you that I'm not who you think I am and that I've been doing something else. And I told her, and um, just told her just like that. It's like it, it, it's like it just came out of me, and um, uh, yeah, and, and it destroyed her world at that point in time. Immediately, automatically, just destroyed it for her. And um, we we had a really difficult period, um, obviously. And um, uh, uh, when we got back to the UK, and a few weeks in, we talked more calmly because initially it was very difficult. She yeah, she didn't want to talk to me, and, and if she did, it was tearful. Um, but as it calmed down, we just talked, and she just said, okay, I understand. Um, can you not be a transvestite? Can you not just do what you've been doing and continue it and have a second life somewhere else and just be that other person, but don't bring it home? Um, and I said to her, well, I can try. I mean, I, you know, I, I've been doing it. Um, I can obviously carry on doing it, but I... I didn't want to be deceiving you. And she said, well, you're not now, so can you just carry on doing that? And I said, yeah, I suppose I can. Um, I said, can I ask you a favor though in return? I said, can you, can you perhaps come and come out with Antonia and spend some time with her and meet Antonia's friends? So I create this bridge. And, and you know, she was really good. She said, yes, I'll do that. And um, so for about three months, um, she would come to the flat and see me get dressed. And then she would come with me to the places I would go to. She'd meet my other friends. And, you know, we'd get back home and she'd say, that was a lovely evening. They're really nice people. I can see you're safe. Um, I can see that you're well-liked. Um, you know, and she was sort of almost um, relaxing. Uh, but but we did it for about three, maybe six months. And, and at the end of it, I realised actually that it was quite a problem for her because what, what, what I thought was helping her was actually making it more difficult because she realized that where she thought I was only a transvestite, she was beginning to realize I wasn't, that I was actually trans. Um, and that when she met all the people who knew me and had known me for five years and were my friends and had shared experiences with me as a woman, she realized that there was so much more to it. And I think at that point she realized it was more permanent and it wasn't something that could easily be turned off or easily just followed as a second, you know, as a hobby <laughs> in the background. Um, and it was then that she found it really difficult. Um, it was then that um, we started growing a bit apart. Um, Andrea drank a bit more than she should do. Um, she said to me, she didn't want the children to know. And she said to me, I think, um, you know, if you're struggling with it, then that's your problem. You know, don't bring it home. And I just said to her, well, I, 
I'm going to transition at work. Um, if I can't transition at home, if I can't be Antonia at home and bring Antonia home, I need more. I can't just be a nocturnal Antonia. I need, I need Antonia to be working. I need Antonia to have a daytime existence. So I said to her, I'm going to transition at work. So that, at that point, I then embarked on starting to transition at work. But that wasn't easy because I had a very blue-blooded, all-male partnership. All my other partners have gone to public school except me. And, you know, and I'd sat around the board table and heard them tell the jokes about the female secretaries. And I'd heard them so many times say around that boardroom table, there'll never be a female partner of Melish and Harding. We're an all-male affair. And I'm thinking, oh, blimey, how do I now tell them what I want to tell them? How, how do I broach this subject? And of course, again, that anorak, that technical person in me just, you know, did the risk analysis and decided they're going to throw me out. Um, but you've got to tell them. Um, so I decided, how am I going to do it? And, and I just thought, well, I've, I've got to project manage this transition. I can't just let it flow. It's got to be managed. So I sat down and I looked at the partners and I just decided who, who are the most approachable and who are the, the credible ones. Uh, start with the approachable ones. And what I did is I phoned, I phoned all of them individually and I said to them, I said, uh, I've made a massive mistake at work. We're going to get sued to kingdom come. And I'm sorry, um, but... I don't know how to tell the wider partnership, so I wouldn't mind if you could meet me in the wine bar after work and let me, t and let me tell you all about it, and then you can give me your counsel. And of course, they were a bit panicky at that point and thought, oh, bloody hell, what's going on? And they said, yeah, of course, I'll meet you in the wine bar tonight, uh, straight away. So I think I said, thank you. And then I would dash off and I would go to the flat and I would get changed as Antonia, so that I'm all fully doled up, ready to go. <laughs> And I would meet them in the wine bar and they would turn up in the wine bar and they would look around and they couldn't see Anthony. And they would start to go and I would just walk up to them and tap them on the back. And I just say, I am here. You need to come and sit down and you need to hear my story. And they would turn around and see me and obviously totally gobsmacked and, uh, and then compliantly just come and sit at the table. And then I would tell them and, and I, I would basically just tell them what I've been doing and what it is for me. And I would say to them, look, you know, I really want to stay working at Mellish and Harding. It's been my career. It's been what I've done. You know, I'm now an equity partner. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, it's all good, isn't it, guys? You know, why would you want to get rid of me? It's just that this is the true me. And, you know, we, we've agreed, we've agreed to exercise a break clause on our lease and we're leaving our current offices in 10 months time. So my plan is um, I won't I won't change now at the old offices because it's everyone's not everyone's used to Anthony there. But when we move to the new offices, I'm going to turn up as Antonia, and Anthony will never appear. And I said, if you're happy, were you telling them or asking them? I was sort of telling them what I was going to do. Yeah, uh, but what I just said, I said, if you're if you're happy with this, and it, and if this meeting this way has helped you understand. I said, please don't tell the other partners that we've met, and I've told you this, keep it to yourself until I've seen all of them individually and they've all had this sort of process. And then when I've seen all of you, go away, talk about it, chat about it as much as you like, tell me to go if you don't want me around, if you don't think the clients can deal with it, if, it, if it's too reputationally damaging for you, tell me to go because 
I'm going to work as Antonio, I've decided, and I think I can cut the mustard wherever I end up. Um, you know, I'm good at what I do, and I, enough people know I'm reasonably good at what I do, that I don't think I'll be out of work. It's going to be a challenge, but I'd really like to stay. I'd really like you to accept me. Um, and I never apologized or anything. I just said, it's me, you know, it's, it's, and I know it's me. So it's not a, it's not a flash in the pan. And hopefully you, you know, you're seeing who I am. Hope, you know, it's not, it's not like, you know, you should be embarrassed. Um, you should be able to cope the big boys, you know, um, and, um, and that's how I did it. I, and I did it with all of them. And yeah, it was difficult doing the credible ones because, you know, they, they just were a little bit more, they didn't want to just sit and listen, you know, they started what ifing all, all sorts of things. And I just said, you know, well, that's what we need to work out. But we've got 10 months to do it, haven't we? I said, you know, hopefully you're going to want me to stay. And anyway, they took two months. They talked about it for two months. And, um, and in the end, they delegated someone to come back who happened to be my the partner, Andrew, who had joined me in those early years. I had told Andrew ahead of all of this separately um, and he was very accepting um i mean you know andrew's been an amazing ally for me but he he turns up and he just said to me he said we've had that meeting we've all sat around and discussed it he said and um i've been told to come back and tell you you make too much money to tell you to go <laughs> and that was it it was pure commercial necessity there was no empathy there was no offer of support there was nothing you know it wasn't they didn't even didn't even well, they didn't even talk about it again. So that was it. So I was, I had got the green light in eight months time to turn up as work as Antonia. And I just said to Andrew, I said, you will tell them that they need to tell the staff ahead of it all then because it's wrong for me to be doing it. You guys need to be doing it. And I, and I joked with Andrew and I said, I, I, I suppose at some point you might, you might talk to me about what it means and whether I could have a bit more time off because, you know, I have to go through certain processes. Um, uh, and he just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the eight months pass, we move office. I turn up on that first day as Antonia, as I said I would. And um, I start unpacking my crates. They hadn't told the staff. The staff didn't know anything. You're kidding. No, 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 nothing had been said. Um, and I think the staff went down the pub at lunchtime for two days afterwards to have a laugh and a giggle. And uh, and at the end of the week, I just remember sending an email around just saying, right, everyone knows Anthony is Antonia. It's business as usual. Um, I'm going to get on with my job, um, you know, and if anyone wants to know any more, if you want me to talk to you about it, you know, whatever. You know, my door's open. Come and talk to me. I'm really happy about it. So your, um, your own team didn't know either, the, the, the team under your sort of command? No, 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 no. only the partners knew. And, um, and that's, anyway, and that's, that's what happened. So um, I think for the first few months, I was reticent. Um, I wasn't reticent in the office, but I was reticent about getting out of the office and uh, physically going to see clients. I think word was spreading, um, but I still had this reticence to just bowl up at a client like I would have done before. Um, and I think Andrew... Andrew was realizing that. And I think he started, he started inviting clients in to come and see me. <laughs> so that I, you know, it was going to break the ice. Yeah. And, um, and I just remember, you know, I, I, I had one of the largest clients the firm had, um, 
big major financial organization and uh, we were doing stacks of work indeed they were our landlord the building we'd moved to and um, I remember um, one day Andrew opens my door comes in and says I've got some I've got some friends here and in walk the two CEOs the two joint CEOs of this business and they just look at me and big grinning smiles and they just say Antonia don't you realize we don't come to you for how you look we come to you for your brain by the way, you look all right. <laughs> Marvellous. Uh, so that was, that was reassuring. It was very reassuring. And I think it unlocked that reticence for me. Good. And, and to, uh, you, you must have so many like, uh, recommendations. You know, property industry, you will have heard it before. This, your your, your um, transition profession was what, nearly 20 years ago, am I right? Yeah, I transitioned, I transitioned from the millennium over, yeah, from 2000 to 2003. Okay, um, so what have you seen change, Joy? Have you seen change? Um, yeah. yeah, I've seen lots of change. Um, yeah, for, for the good. Um, uh, businesses are now um, recognising the, the value of that diverse workforce and the power of that diverse workforce. Um, you know, I, 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 I readily go and talk to businesses about my experiences of being trans and, and having those handcuffs taken off my, my, my arms. Um, you know, it, it teaches you to be resilient. I think, I think any, anything where you're a minority and you're trying to, to live an ordinary life in, in the context of being in that minority, it does make you more resilient. I mean, trans is, you know, it's, it's, it's not like being gay. You know, when you come out as a gay person, it's still you visually. You don't have to, you don't have to go through a, a chameleon change as you do being trans. Um, and, and I think a lot of people think you're almost coming out every day as a trans person. I, I, I don't feel like that at all. I'm I'm the woman the woman I know I am and, and have always been. Um, and I think it's been powerful. Um, I think people have clients have recognized that that in me. And and you know, one of the things clients often say is, Blimey Antonio, if you can do this in the construction industry, we want more of you on our jobs, you know, running them. So if you if you could describe the reaction you received, I guess it's not so much new news anymore when you're in terms of your professional network, you know. Um, but in those earlier years, if you could describe the reaction you received in one word, what, what do you think that would be? What the reaction, the reaction to the change? Yes. Well, initially it was gob gobsmacked. Everyone couldn't believe what what was going on um i i think you know I, I as a trans person i i never disliked me myself as a male um i i didn't abhor my body um i just knew it wasn't mine you know it, it's not what my head and my soul is um so so it wasn't like people suspected anything so initially they were gobsmacked i i i think as times moved on I would say they are assured, they, they are comfortable that I'm able to be who I really am. Um, I think all my, you know, 
so so five years so so i transitioned at mellish and harding five years on um having worked with them as that woman doing all the things i was doing before still running a building consultancy department of quite a well-known firm doing big stuff um five years on the partners came to me and they they said you know we'd quite like you to be next senior partner you know um, Richard was stepping down and they thought I would be the right candidate um, but I had actually been changing um, it, being the woman and wanting to work as a woman works in the way she wanted to work I, I wanted to work more collaboratively I wanted to work with more empathy um, I think you know I probably had emotional intelligence as a guy, but I was never using it. I was starting to use it more. I mean, the hormones and what I'd done were changing me and they were making me see things from a different perspective. Um, so that five years on, I just turned to them and said, no, I don't think I want to be senior partner here, if I'm honest. I think I'm going to leave. I want to go off and start my own business. Um, and that, that caused a bit of a bit of problem because they weren't overly keen on me going. Um, in fact, they wanted me to stay. Um, I'd been talking with Andrew um, about leaving for a while. He knew that I was thinking of going. Um, and I, it just brought things to a head. And um, in the end, Andrew and I both left. We, we, we left the firm. And um, in doing that, um, we suddenly found all of our team, and we were about 20 then at that point, all of our team came to us and said, we're coming with you. We're not going to stay which was amazing that they were going to leave you know their employment rights and join a startup business that that andrew and i was were starting up and um and i remember thinking you know wow you know this is amazing because they're they're, they're going off and joining a transgender woman who's you know trying to trying to cut the mustard on her own you know outside of all the the comforts of big firms and and stuff and um but they did they 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 wanted to come and um so we left Melosh and harding and we set up mhbc in on the 1st of april 2007. it was a difficult it was a difficult thing to do because we were we were two equity partners um of um seven partners um and we were the only two building surveyors um all the us all the rest were general practice and brokerage and investment um and um they were and because of what we were doing building surveying wise and, and we were we were the cash flow of the firm we were we were generating all the cash through the year and, and obviously the, the commercial agency operations would decide to build later on in the year when they got their act together um they realized that they were going to struggle um and and so a lot of their, their their attempts to convince us to stay were around trying to keep the firm going rather than just you know wanting us being there um but we went and so we had to agree a um we agreed a reorganization agreement because obviously andrew and i going we were also going to be taking all our team and they would no longer have a building surveying team and they had to deal with their client base on the basis they were no longer going to be providing building surveying services um so that was complicated we we, we agreed this reorganization agreement and we created two new firms and we collapsed the old joint and several partnership at the same time so we did a lot of a lot of structural change around the fact that i said i didn't want to be senior partner when i was going that sounds 
complicated, but um, if anybody could um, could pull it off, I dare say you could. Yeah. Um, it's impressive. So, Antonia, we we obviously are running a campaign around. You know, it's it's it. We're in lockdown. The world's kind of stopped spinning in its usual fashion. We're all reflecting internally. My firm we really try and um, make a difference whilst the market might not be what we want it to be. And, um, and we um, have chosen to, um, to, to take this, this next phase of our activities and, and, and pin it alongside Pride, LGBTQ+. Um, and I know you do some amazing charitable, um, charitable work as well. So, before we get on, just what should the real estate? I go to many conferences, and I'm sure you do too. And we, we hear we hear that the property industry might be behind the end of times from certain respect. What's your take on where we are as a sector, and how might we need to either catch up or, or you know, think differently? I, I think the, the sectors impress me, if I'm honest. Um, I think there's some great, great, great initiatives. Um, I mean, within surveying, there's, there's freehold. You've probably heard of freehold, which is a joint initiative between the surveyors and the lawyers. Um, there's planning out, which is, again, um, um, planning surveyors, joining up with surveyors generally. Um, there's um, the contracting organizations which are creating their own networks. Um, there's LGBT Construct. Um, there's quite a lot of good network groups now which um, are allowing, um, well, they're, they're just helping and they're allowing people to group and meet. Um, a lot of these now represent themselves at the Pride, the Pride um, events that take place. Um, it, I think there's a lot happening and it's all for the good. Um, I, I, get to, I get asked to talk to some of these and talk to other industries. Um, I, I must admit, I was talking to the insurance and the lawyers 10 years ago. They, they were interested in this sort of stuff and, and trying to create more diverse workforces. Um, you know, they they realised the, you know, the, the race for talent and if you start you start excluding 10% of your workforce, then you know that's crazy. And particularly if if it's a workforce that's just looking for loyalty. You know, if you if you if you, I mean, I often say if if you if you employ a thousand people, you're going to have some trans people in your in in your workforce. And if they don't feel comfortable to be themselves, they will leave and they will go somewhere where where the organisation is 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 trans aware, is trans friendly, and trans ready. What so, is the statistic that that what percentage of the working populate or the population is trans? Well, we don't know, and this is one of the biggest uh, disadvantages for the trans community. I mean, it, the trans community is quite fragmented, but it doesn't have decent statistics behind it to really know, and and trying to get those statistics is is a problem. Um, I think YouGov and other organisations are starting to wake up to the need to perhaps try and get those stats to help development. Um, but uh, I mean, it's, it's one percentish, so you know, it's 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 not very big. But you know, I still say that I, I mean, there's a correlation between being trans and high IQ. Supposedly, I mean, I'm not a scientist on this front, so I think you know, 
you, you, you're very resilient having to be trans. Um, I, I just, just think why waste that, that resource by just not, you know, by, by not giving it the means to be its true self. I mean, I think there's massive power of authenticity for me. It's worked for my, for me very much so. And, um, and I can't see why it wouldn't work for any other trans person. I mean, it's, I mean, I have seen life from both sides in the working sphere. I've, I've, um, I've, I, I've been able to, um, see it from the man's perspective and I now see it from the woman's perspective in terms of managing people, in terms of um, uh, um, assessing situations, um, dealing with situations. I like to think that, you know, it's given me unique skills. Um, I, certainly, I certainly know that my emotional intelligence um, in the way I, I deal with projects and I work with it is very different now. And, whether, whether I've natu naturally gone down that route or whether I've worked on it, I'm not sure, but um, it's, it's what happens. Um, I see, I see. T tell us, Antonio, tell us about the, the, the charitable work that you do because it's incredible. And, and, and I know many of our listeners will, will, will be very interested in, to hear how they might be able to support your career. Okay, well, thank you for that opportunity. Um, so in, in summer 2018, um, I, um, it started in a way, I, maybe I can just explain it. So, so having, having transitioned at work and then, then obviously transitioning at home, which ultimately happened in that Andrea um, was happy for me to, to, to become a woman at home. And, and we, we changed our marriage certificate in 20. 2014 to a same-sex marriage certificate. So we were actually married for 39 years, uh, two Saturdays back on the 16th of May. Um, uh, but we have a same-sex marriage certificate that is 39 years old because the government doesn't issue a, a new one from the date you, um, you, you change your marriage. Um, it, it's the old one just, just represented as two women that got married. I, I think we were one of the early, early uh, um, uh, people to do this um, but I had said to Andrew in 2010 um, that um, after she'd agreed I could transition at home and we'd stay together and we wouldn't disrupt the family I remember saying to her you know I keep reading articles in the press about trans trans people being portrayed in a, in a horrid way in a torrid way you know the media were, were buggers really they were just any, if they could find a trans person, they would tell their story in a, in, a, in, a, in a bad way. And I said, I've just got fed up reading all these stories. You know, we need to tell the world about you and I and about what's happened. And the fact we're still together with three children and, you know, and, and, and happily married. And we changed our marriage certificate to a same-sex marriage. Because Andrea, you, you've transitioned in your own way to allow me to be who I am. I said, this is an amazing story. We should tell others. Um, and, and we're not alone in this, there are other people who have done this, but, but many of them don't put their head above the parapet and tell others. And if you can't lead by example, then you don't change. And so I just said to her, can I have your permission to tell people about what we've done? And I went to the three kids and said, can I have permission to tell what we've done? Because it affects you. And I said, you know, we might get some backlash from the media, but I want you to be strong. And if you don't want me to do this, say so. Anyway, they all said, no, do it. And was dad do it they call me dad still at home because i am their dad no dad do it so so we've done that and i've done it from 2010 and um and 
and I've gone out and I've talked within the UK and, and I've done all sorts of things within the UK. Um, I, I'm a trustee of Diversity Role Models, trustee of Terence Higgins Trust, um, and recently been made a trustee of the Trevor Project, which is um, uh, um, a, a large um, suicide or anti-suicide charity within the LGBT plus, G plus world. And, um, but what, what was worrying me um, when we got to about 2018 was, was more about, I could see change in the UK. I could see good happening in the UK, both for young trans people and for, for, for people middle aged. I couldn't see much happening for the older trans people, but, but I just thought, you know, things are improving in the UK. But what it worried me, what worried me most was the fact the world still is very anti-trans. Um, in 60 countries today, it's um, uh, a criminal offence to be trans. And of those 60, I think 30, it's a death sentence. Um, you know, and when you think of it like that, you know, that's just terrible. Um, and although you've got 60 countries where it's criminalised, there's still a vast number of countries where it's not criminalised, but, but trans people are treated appallingly. You wouldn't want to be trans. And, um, you know, and these people are just like me. They, 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 you know, they want to be their true selves. They want to lead their lives in an ordinary way in their true selves. And it just worried me that not a lot was happening. So I did a bit of research and just worked out how much money was being raised to help trans activists in countries like this. And I was shocked there was very little money being raised. Um, where, where it's criminalized, governments won't give to other governments. Uh, they won't give to charities because obviously they're, they're forbidden to do so because of the government's attitude. So what money gets raised is, is done through um, specific trans activist organizations and, and, it's, uh, and it's small beer. I, I was shocked by what I was, I was reading and finding out. Anyway, so I decided to create a charity um, in, in the summer of 2018 to, to help uh, trans activists, um, to raise money, to get money to them, to enable them to um, do, do whatever they can to teach their own governments, their own, their own populations, that their DNA stinks criminalizing trans, that their culture is wrong criminalizing trans. Um, a bit of a tall target, but I, I, I hooked up with Elliot Vaughan at Give Out, who, who I've known for a while, and he was, he was starting Give Out, which is a, a new form of charity. It, it's a charity, it's a vehicle that does all the hard graft, but finds people like me who want to sponsor specific causes, and they will then do all the detail work behind me, headlining, raising funds, so that I don't have to do all the um, compliance and all the due diligence. Um, I don't have to worry about how the money gets to the, to, to, to the activists. They handle all of that. Um, and, um, and I hooked up with them in 2018 and I said, well, can we create one a charity that's just helping trans activists? Um, it's, you know, I, 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 had, I had approached a lot of big LGBT charities and I'd said to them, you know, I've, I've donated XYZ over the years to you. Could you tell me how much was specifically going to help trans causes? And every time they filibustered and filibustered and filibustered and never told me anything. And I realized that, you know, probably not a lot, if anything, was ever getting to trans. So it just drove me on to start this charity. And um, anyway, 
year and a half on, um, we'd raised £65,000 um, in that year and a half. And we're now sponsoring, um, we've, we've gone out and we've found um, specific um, causes to, to um, sponsor. And we're sponsoring CLPR, who are a bunch of uh, pro bono solicitors in India. Um, who are working for the trans community to um, get all their rights that they, they should have, defend their rights um, legally. And so they provide free, free legal services to any trans person who is um, being um, taken to court for whatever reason. Uh, the biggest win so far is actually we've supported two trans men police officers to get into the Indian police force. It was unheard of for any trans people to be a part of the police force, but we've now got two trans men into the police force there. Um, they, they've won some amazing rights at Supreme Court. Um, we're also sponsoring Tonga Latus, which is a trans organization based in Tonga. And we're, what we're doing is we're giving them money to spread out to all the other islands, to bring all the islands together, to get a catchment of trans across all of the Pacific Asia islands. We've been doing the same in Jamaica with a trans organization in Jamaica who's now succeeded in spreading out to all the Caribbean islands and that organization is called Untrans that came into existence earlier this year. We're also um, sponsoring Transparent in Czechoslovakia which is a parent organization supporting trans kids um, and helping them with all the financing of, of all the work they're doing to create a system to back up what they're doing. Um, and then lastly, we're sponsoring ERA, um, Equality Rights Association in the Western Balkans. Um, and I went to Albania just before Christmas um, because we had the first trans, we had the first conference um, based around trans um, in Albania, first one ever. Um, but we um, got together with um, trans people in Slovakia, Slovenia, Herz Bosnia, Herzegovina, Macedonia, um, Turkey, uh, you name it. And we, we, had a, oh, we had about 15 countries worth of different trans people coming together for the first conference ever, ever in the Western Balkans area. And we're, and we're creating a caucus there so that we can get um, more trans people um, telling governments what they need to do and how they need to do it, um, why they should do it. Um, so it's small beer at the moment, but it's great to be funding these organisations and helping them do these things. Um, you know, in our case, you'd be surprised what a pound, how far a pound goes in some parts of these world, in, in parts of, of the world here. Um, and I'm, and I'm, so I'm seed funder to this charity. So I, I underpin it, whatever it does, to make sure it keeps going. Um, but I'm out there just telling everyone and asking them if they can donate, contribute a small bit just to, to help us get on with it. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that seems to be working. We can most definitely do that, Antonio, yeah. and, 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 and we absolutely will. And the other thing I hope that we can do, which might help, is by circulating this podcast, but also all of the links that you can share with me um, we, will, we, will, we, will, we will point our audience in, in their direction as well and hopefully we can really make a difference. There's a quarter of a million property people um, within our network and, um, and I really hope that 
that we can support you and the causes that you are supporting. Um, you are one fascinating human being. I've, I'm, I'm privileged. I, I've, I've, um, I've, done, I've done nothing but this for the best part of 20 years. Um, and what I do is meet people, interesting people. Everyone's interesting. You are particularly interesting. And I've been podcasting now for, uh, I don't know, 18 months or so. And, and I, I can safely say we've broken the record for the longest podcast. And I've, I don't think we've scratched the surface. That's the, that's the sad truth. So I've, I've let myself down and, and, and our listeners down. And, and maybe when we're allowed out of lockdown, we could, we could do, um, we could do um, you know, um, round two of this. Because yeah, I, think yeah. you're, I think the message that, that you carry and, and the, and, uh, into our sector is incredibly important. And um, I think, I uh, know, you inspire many, many people. So, I just want to thank you for sharing your story, um, for, for, for being yourself, and, and, um, and it's endlessly fascinating. I really, really wish we could be But I have to wrap it up. Before I do, we, I always ask people a few quick-fire questions. Are you up for playing that game? Yes, okay. Sure? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, they're very quick, so, um, you know, I'll, I'll jump straight to it. Um, right, ice cream or sorbet? Ice cream. Victoria conversion or purpose-built new build? Mm. At my time of life, it would be purpose new build. You have to say that, don't you, as well, professionally speaking, or not. Yeah. Um, British holiday. I live, Edwardian, I live in an Edwardian house, so that's why it was uh, slightly uh, <laughs> loaded. I, I could see from, uh, from the screen. Um, uh, holiday in Britain or abroad? Abroad. Uh, flats or high heels? Um, <laughs> high heels. <laughs> Bowie or the Beatles? Oh, uh, Bowie. I thought you'd say that, and 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 he—that's my my choice as well. And finally, I ask everybody this question. Um, if you had one building, any building anywhere in the world, which building would it be and why? If I owned, if it. I owned it. Yeah. Wow. That's a good question. That's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. It's not a bad building. <laughs> and I think you get to see it every day, don't you, pretty much? I do. I do. Um, and we're very close neighbours, so thank you again. I'm, I'm going to insist that uh, we get to toast this, this conversation over a drink. And, and you are really an incredible person, so thank you for all you're doing. Do. Thanks for agreeing to be our, our poster girl of our, of our Pride campaign and just keep up all the good work. Thank you. I'm very honoured that you've asked me to do this and thank you very much. Um, I've enjoyed it. So, yes, thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's thank nice. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's okay. Um, yeah, I... I, I, I hope you're happy with that. I mean, I could have just... I mean, we, as I, I said everything on, on, on the um, recording, but um, you're, you're so interesting. Just such a life you've led and I... I mean that. Maybe I can pop down. I'm on Cannon Street, so... Yeah, by all means, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I, I don't know when I'm going to be in the. I don't know when I'm going to be in the office, but yeah, no, let's do that. Have a coffee or a glass of wine. That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is so much more that you know. I, I scratched the surface of what's what's happened um, and how it's happened. Um, you know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and and yeah, there, there's. I, I know, and 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 I know a lot of LGBT. Q plus people might listen to this and, and, and they, they will listen for certain things and, and find hooks that, that either um, assure them or, or, or give them some, some similarity. Um, and it, you know, it's one of the, I mean, we didn't obviously talked about my dad, but you know, when he died, I think that one of the, the most difficult bits for me was and, and almost um, you, you, you go through your you go through your journey thinking are you doing the right thing and, and constantly challenging yourself but I remember when he died and he died before I transitioned and he never knew my dad didn't know about me um, and what and he died it wasn't a great uh, he um, yeah he went in for an operation and it went wrong and he ended up dying but he didn't die straight away after the operation he lived for about six months um but he 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 was a he was a shadow of himself through through that six months and just slowly deteriorated 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 until mrsa killed him eventually yeah um, and he was in intensive care for an in incredibly long time but when that was going on this was at the point i had um i was transitioning just about to transition at work and and I'm just thinking I need to tell my dad and of course I never told him because I couldn't have ever told him what was going on while he was in this state it just wouldn't have been fair to the man um, and when he was when we were at the um, crematorium and um, he, he was in his, his, his in his casket and he was about to go into the into the oven doors um, I was standing very close to the, to the coffin and my dad had an incredible amount of male friends, you know, all from the industry, builders, merchants, yeah. Um, yeah. state agents, subcontractors, you name it. And, and, they, and they, he would have been down the pub with them having a, a few beers. Um, and they all came and they're all standing around his coffin and, um, and they're all gonna say their last farewells to him. And I think they had agreed to do that. That was what they wanted to do. And um, I'm standing there near them as Anthony and, and they're all going, Dennis, you're a great mate. Dennis, you were a great bloke. Dennis, man, you were the best friend, the best friend a man could have. All those sort of comments. And I'm just sitting there listening to this and I'm just thinking, it won't be long before I'm in my coffin. And will all my friends be saying, Anthony, what a great bloke you were, Anthony, what a great man you were, or Anthony, what a sod you were as a man or whatever, but it would be man because they only knew me as a man. And I just thought, I'll go to my death and no one will really know who I am. They'll never know that actually I'm not a man, I'm a woman. Yeah? And that was, that was one of the most powerful points that made me say to myself, I'm on the right track, I'm doing the right thing here, I've got to lead my life my way. Yeah. So, uh, so we're um, 
some of the guys, as you can probably tell, I, I always feel a bit uncomfortable talking around these subjects, not because I hope I'm not at all bigoted in any way, shape or form. I really couldn't care less. But I, I, I'm uncomfortable with the language. I don't want to use the wrong language and offend anybody, which, which um, sort of makes me slightly hesitant. But um, a few of the guys in my firm are op openly, you know, guys and girls are openly gay. And, and so they're really driving all of the activity that you'll see, hopefully, in the coming weeks. One of them is um, a, a simple campaign, which is, a bit, uh, I can't remember, it's a hashtag, be your true self, or what words along those lines. So again, we're hoping that we can get that to, you know, to, to, to travel across the industry. And, and, and if you join us in that, that would be amazing um, yeah, at, at the beginning. Of, it's, yeah, it's really yeah. simple. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Look, you're a very special person, and 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 I've loved loved getting to. I feel like I know you, although I don't. You you know I don't know you, and you don't know me at all. But it's been. Very I, um, fun. I, I did a I did a um a video. I was supposed to be on a Goldman Sachs panel um, for Pride, something Goldman Sachs were doing, and uh, I think we were I think we were scheduled to do it next week, and. Um, Obviously, we can't do it, so it's been cancelled. So they're going to do it later on in the year. But what they've asked me to do is a little video talking about what pride means to me, um, and 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 what do allies mean to me. Um, so I've done it and I've sent it to them. But I'll I'll share it with you. Um, Thank you. So that you can just have a look at it because um, I've done it with my grandson on my knee. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Is a total bloody distraction, as you'll probably see when I try to do it. But uh, but, it, but yeah, I'll share it with you. And you can see Please it. do. And um, look, I've, I can't thank you enough. But let, let's get behind your your charitable causes and um, and let's have some fun along the way as well. Okay. That's really important. I'll send I'll send you details on the charity and and we we just we just issued a, an update of what we've done, which is what I mentioned. So that will go into things in a bit more detail. Thank you. Take okay. care of yourself, won't you? I will. And you. Okay. Right. Bye. Well, Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. You can join the DS movement by visiting ds.devilsmith.com and you will receive the latest Deadcast episode direct to your inbox.